Hello, and welcome to the Interculturally of Council podcast. My name is Jerry Weber, and I will be your host for this biweekly podcast. The aim of this podcast is to raise the awareness of legal professionals of the need for intercultural competence in their daily practice. Regardless of whether one works in a law firm, for a government agency, in a company, or as a sole practitioner, the globalized world in which we live requires us to interact with clients, colleagues, companies, and government entities from other cultures. An awareness of our own cultural imprint, along with the ability to recognize the cultural patterns of others, can go a long way to improving how we work together. I will be interviewing experienced legal professionals working in different capacities around the world to learn what tips they can give practitioners for improving how they work and communicate with other cultures in the legal context. episode 13 of the Interculturally of Counsel podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Catherine Way. Catherine works in a field related to the law, but she is not a legal professional. Kathy is a senior lecturer in translation and interpreting at the University of Granada. She teaches translation students at the bachelor and master's levels, and her focus is on teaching legal translation. Kathy began her career as an interpreter. She is a native English speaker and studied French and Spanish. Over her career, she has been involved in translating and interpreting for people from many different countries. She not only teaches, but is engaged in finding new and better ways to train translators for their real-world jobs. She is engaged in projects teaming law students with translation students to look at how one ends up with the most reliably useful translations. During our interview, Kathy shares her observations about the most challenging parts of being a good legal translator. The laws are always changing, the large amount of background research required, and the need to convince legal professionals of the expertise of well-trained translators. She also shares many insights into how translators are educated, giving listeners a much better view into how a professional translator works. At the end of our discussion, Kathy gives us some tips to consider when working on the translation of a legal text. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Today I'm happy to welcome uh, Kathy Way, who is a lecturer at the University of Granada. Thanks for talking to me today, Kathy. It's a pleasure. Um, Before we start with the questions, could you tell our listeners where we would find you sitting today, this morning? Actually, I'm at home today because the faculty is far too noisy <laughs> to do this sort of thing, um, and we'd be interrupted. So I'm actually at home in Ojijares, which is a village just outside Granada in Spain. Okay. What I'd like to ask you for my first question, if you could describe what you would say is your home culture, you know, the culture through which you look out at the world. That's a difficult question. Um, I would think mainly the UK um, although I was born in Cyprus and had an Italian grandfather, uh, so it was a little mixed up at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, my early education was in the UK, in Wales, um, and since the age of 16, when I began to travel more 
with my interest in languages, mainly French and Spanish. Uh, since then, I think it's just become broader and broader. I sometimes say I don't really know where I'm from, uh, especially as I've now spent almost 30 years in Spain, so most of my adult life in Spain. Okay. Well, well that leads then into my next question. Um, you've just mentioned it. You've spent time in other countries. Could you tell us, mm. you studied, worked, what kind of time have you spent? Obviously, now you're in Spain now, but outside of your uh, birth country. Uh, I started uh, at university as I was studying French and Spanish. I spent six months in France and then came on exchange, actually, to Granada for nine months. Um, and then I began to move around more when I actually became a university lecturer later on in 1989, uh, particularly as we got to conferences and so on, and recently a lot as I'm invited to go and give conferences or courses in other countries. So... China, Japan, I'm going to Texas at the end of this month, um, South America, Peru, Mexico, um, Brazil, Cyprus. I've been back to once and I'm planning to go back again next uh, this year if I can to a conference. Europe, most of Europe. I haven't been to Russia yet, I must admit. That's one of the ones I haven't been to. Let's begin with this one then, since you, you said you had started your university studies in the UK and then you went to France. Um, when, you, when you first went to France, could you tell us about some of the differences you perceived between you know, your experience, your cultural experience in the UK and then moving to France? Uh, going to France, I mean, bear in mind this is pre-internet, so obviously we, went, we were blind when we went literally. You didn't really know where you were going or what you were going to find. Um, I think the most surprising thing was that although there were other uh, colleagues from my course, we were in the university residence, and the French students really didn't want to know us. We made a lot of friends from other countries, particularly Africa, um, but they were not very interested in anybody from another country. And surprisingly, one of my students mentioned this to me recently, an Erasmus student who was here from the UK on Ireland, I think he was from, uh, because we make them work in groups. Okay. And we always uh, make sure that the Erasmus students or international students are shared out so that they can learn from their colleagues, get help from their colleagues in Spain. Because the Spanish university system can be quite complicated if you're, if you're new to it. And he said, we don't do this in Ireland. The foreign students come and they don't do it. Fortunately, I mean, the French do have sometimes uh, in Europe have a have a bad name as not being very friendly, which is totally untrue because there were a group of ladies who had sort of a welcoming association in uh, Kong, in Normandy, which is where I was. And they adopted us and took us everywhere and showed us everything. And they were lovely. So that broke down that myth of the French being very standoffish. Um, and then Spain was a bigger shock afterwards, actually, <laughs> because I came to Andalusia, which is in the south, and it was only 81, so, you know, not long after the isolation from Franco, Spain was changing tremendously. Um, and it was my second language. I hadn't been studying it that long, so it was harder. Um, and again, breaking into society, I think you find simple things like, you know, the time or punctuality. Right. People would say, we'll meet at midday, and, and I would turn up at 12 o'clock and hear midday is 3 o'clock when you have lunch, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, so that, that, those were some of the main problems. Um, let me also ask you this because we'll, we'll, I'm going to talk to you a minute about your work and your specialty. But I mean, you are in the education field, so um, on a on a purely looking at purely from an educational uh, point of view, how different was uh, the situation studied in France from the UK and then 
studying in, in Spain because they clearly probably had different ways of approaching material, how they how you worked? Yes, I mean, this is one of the things we look at very closely now, which is the students' baggage that they bring with them. Simple things like how exams are run or timetables or how you deal with a professor, um, tutorials, the way you address people, because, I mean, as you go from English to French or Spanish, you have the vous amusez, which are not used in English. So simple things like how you speak to people. And uh, I think the further you go into the administration and education is part of the administration, uh, the more complex it becomes because there are more differences. Okay. You know, the number of pieces of paper that you have to complete or uh, requirements you have to comply with that perhaps don't exist in your home culture. And people talk to you about them as though they're perfectly natural and you have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have to really try to find out what, what they mean. Yeah, yeah, you're not just translated words, it's also ideas about... Oh, no. Are, <laughs> oh, no. What, what we, how we, exactly, how we take exams, what we do. Yeah. Um, we actually we actually did a program. We had a European program that we set up with Cyprus, Ireland, Slovenia, and the UK, uh, which was called Teaching in the Multicultural Classroom, where we created a module to help uh, staff or faculty to learn how to deal with incoming international students, which for us in translation was not a major problem. We've been doing it for years. But in other faculties like law or business, it was quite new. And bearing in mind that many of the staff had not actually been abroad or very little because under Franco, people didn't travel very much from Spain. Uh, they had problems adapting to the international students or understanding why they didn't understand something. Sure, sure, that makes a lot of sense. Um, can you tell mm. our listeners where you work now in your area of specialty? Right. Um, although I initially joined the faculty to work in interpreting, because I'd been interpreting a lot in the courts, which was something that um, not aroused, but perhaps brought back to my mind my interest in the law, uh, I eventually ended up teaching translation because of changes in the whole degree uh, curriculum. Um, and there's, this is very popular in Spain because we do have official translators and people wanted to train to become official translators, mainly in uh, legal translation, some economic financial as well. Um, and that's into English normally uh, is what I teach, um, although I still give some classes on, on interpreting in the courts. Do you, do you teach primarily in English? I'm, uh, I'm guessing you are fluent in Spanish by now after 30 years in Spain, but... Yes. <laughs> uh, um, well, our teaching, we try to use English as much as possible in the classes. Uh, the students appreciate that particularly in the latest. I only teach in the third and fourth year in the final years and in the master's program, um, both in Granada and, and in other places. So I do try to use English as much as possible as we're translating into English. But if we're talking about, I don't know, the Spanish criminal system, we do that in Spanish. Sure, okay. Um, Doesn't make much sense. No, to do it in English. I, I, could, I could see the point. Um, I, I, the reason I ended up contacting you, of course, is, you know, I'm myself a legal professional and saw in, in my practice how often one was confronted with translating texts, um, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's contracts or I even know, you know, obviously in the criminal proceedings and immigration proceedings, there are all kinds of situations where um, translation skills, either written or oral, are, are required. I, I would like to ask you about um, your experience. First of all, you said you started out with um, interpreting. Can you, did you work with other cultures while interpreting? Can you tell us some of the maybe cultures you worked with in, in your interpreting work? 
Well, it's, uh, the English-Spanish combination is enormous because you're not just talking about Spanish from Spain, you're talking about Spanish from you know, a lot of South American countries, which although they, they do have the same legal system or came from the same legal system, have all developed differently. And then English, besides all the English-speaking countries or countries that use English as another language, is also used in the courts as a lingua franca. So I've dealt with people from China, Romania, the Scandinavian countries, um, Africa, which is complicated uh, because, again, there are different varieties of English. And also then you're talking about hundreds of legal systems. You know, they're not really uh, all, all, they don't have, well, some of them have a common core, but they all vary slightly. So I I would think practically anything. India, a lot of work with adoption, international adoption with India, for example, Mm -hmm. in business, commerce, you know, export, import, uh, with China. And then in immigration, it could be almost anything. Can you, share with our listeners because I mean already just listening to the, the variety obviously this is a very a very complex field which I think a lot of people don't initially think about um, when based upon your experience could you maybe give us a couple of areas where you find that the true challenges of legal translation lie I mean what are the big challenges for people working in this field in legal translation uh, I think one of the major challenges as a translator particularly, is that the law is constantly changing. So it's extremely difficult to keep up to date with all the changes, and as I've mentioned, all the, you know, this massive uh, range of possibilities that we may be faced with suddenly. You do have to uh, you know, keep yourself updated, constantly training uh, as much as you can. I must say it's much easier now since internet exploded. I mean, I started pre-internet, so that was, you know, horrific. Uh, getting hold of information on, you know, something about Botswana was practically impossible. Um, but that's one of the changes. One of the other changes I've worked quite a lot on is also the um, trying to connect the legal profession and translation and interpreting. Uh, and I have done projects with the law faculty. We have connected with the profession here in Spain. But as we're considered a fairly new profession, despite the fact everybody says we're the second oldest profession in the world, um, we're not often greeted with open arms uh, because the law faculties here and the legal professions do have this long tradition and they have this high position in society. But, I mean, we have advanced a fair amount. They actually now call us in the law faculty experts, which has been a major achievement. Um, They consider that they need to work with us, but a lot of people within the legal profession or the law faculty still consider that, you know, as long as you have Google Translate in the dictionary, you can manage. And this is completely incorrect. I mean, you see horrific uh, translations or or attempts at translation um, using just, you know, those instruments. Yeah. Let me ask you this. This might be a bit bit controversial, but, I mean, uh, given (laughs) that you've probably thought about this, um, what would your view about who tends to be a better legal translator? I mean, you have either a lawyer with no formal translation education, but who may speak other languages, mm-hmm. or a translator mm-hmm. who has no formal legal education. Do you have a view on that? Um, I think this has been going on for a long time because the European Union, for example, always used to take on translators who were specialists in their fields, or lawyers, sure. um, who could speak a language. And in one of the projects we did, we actually asked the students before the project, when they worked with our students, that it was finally a students in both fields working together. And about 99% said they would, or 95% said they would always take a lawyer with languages. 
at the end of the project, when they saw all the things that translators could do, which is not just translating, they can do research in you know other countries for you, and they're very good at analyzing and summarizing information for you. Um, all of them had changed their mind. Okay, that's so, I mean, I, we do have a lot of students who uh, have studied law either at the same time or, or after their degree. Mm-hmm. Some of them go on and do master's courses in law with no prior legal training. But um, I think I'm spoiled because in Granada we do have the best students in Spain. There are cut-off marks to get into the faculties, and we have the highest mark, one of the highest marks with medicine. We tend to sort of be on a par with medicine. So I'm spoiled as for the, the, the quality of the students as well. We also have had in our degree always, until recently, because of some changes that we're now hoping to change again, uh, law subjects. And I negotiated with the law faculty to come and not just to teach law as they taught in the law faculty, which is very traditional, you know, learn the code. Um, And I see the law students saying, well, I know this article is applied here, but if I ask them what it really means, they can't tell me. So um, it's a big debate. I have seen, I think, a lawyer who has been also trained as a translator, and we've had recently a a lawyer from Ecuador on our professional translation master's course. Um, He said his eyes were opened enormously as to the differences. I think we have to be careful because one of the things is interpretation. One thing is interpreting a text to be able to translate it so that you can maintain ambiguity if it's in the original as as that's the intention of the reader, of the writer, sorry. Um, And another thing is interpreting something legally. So we make very clear that there are differences between two types. Um, And I think it depends whether the person who's then going to do the job feels themselves more of a lawyer or more of a translator. They sort of tend to pull towards one direction or the other. But obviously, if you can have legal training and be a translator, you have an enormous advantage. However, having said that, the first, uh, some of our first translators or in the early years who had very little legal training at the time have gone on to be excellent legal translators, but because they've continued to uh, improve on their training. Well, that that would lead me to I think my next question because since obviously you're 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 teaching and and, and, and educating um, translators, um, what is the process for a, 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 you know when we start studying translation, regardless of what one has plans to do with that, um, if, if when someone starts to see uh, the legal areas and they they find it interesting, um, are they then encouraged to also like you just mentioned to do some coursework in the law just to understand. Yeah, what the, the underlying fundamentals are to help them have that view in their head when they make, you know, translation decisions about how, how to interpret something. Oh, very much so. I mean, preparation is you know, 80% of the work mainly. And uh, although, you know, obviously courses are restricted in the amount of time that you have and, and there's so much to see in English, Spanish legal translation that you can't possibly see everything. So what we try to do is use an approach whereby we use a discourse, use a discourse analysis system so that uh, we begin with something you know, relatively easy like family law, which is at least vaguely familiar to somebody who has no knowledge of the law. And the first thing is you need to learn about the legal systems. We start off with you know Spain, UK, which is relatively geographically close, although very different in their systems. Uh, the legal language, they must learn the legal language as if it were another language. And then even within legal language, you know, notary's language, judge's language, uh, they all vary slightly. So we start them off with some steps, and it's more on how to do it than just learning it. They all, I do a, you know, a diagnosis at the beginning and ask them what they want to learn, and they all say, oh, you know, terminology, vocabulary, you find that on Internet easily. 
It's everything else in between that's the problem. Everything that's hidden in the text, everything that's embedded culturally, what is behind this, you know, things like abbreviations or even just the textual conventions, the way a text is presented, which if you translate it uh, in the same way as the original text could be rejected because it's unfamiliar by the reader. Um, and then we go on to, uh, you know, we begin expanding. So they do research, and the first thing they do is research to understand the original text, to understand the language, uh, to understand all the cultural questions behind, to spot possible problems that will not be understand by, understood by the reader mm-hmm. before they even think about translating. And what they do is then see where that text is situated in which social process. Because a text can be used differently in different social processes. So text being used in an adoption um, application may be used differently in an emigra- immigration po- process, okay. Okay. even though the information contained is the same. And when they've done that, they go to the social process in the other language and culture, look at who produces it, why is it produced that way, what differences are there, you know, macrostructural and microstructural differences with the text in the original culture. Mm-hmm. And then they think about translating. And by that time, they picked up so much information, so much discourse, so much terminology. They rarely use dictionaries or, you know, any or databases, uh, glossaries, and so on, because they picked everything up along the way. Okay, they've just had such an in-depth look at it that they, it's just very clear to them where they need to go with, with the translation, is what you're mm-hmm. saying. They're also always willing to consult with experts if they have any doubts, but only as a final phase. When you have you know, exhausted your possibilities of finding information yourself, you need to consult an expert. We do a lot on how to consult an expert. You can't just go along and say, oh, I don't understand this, help me, because people don't have time to do this, and they will you know, maybe charge you for it, uh, but with specific questions. You know, I've seen this, but I'm not absolutely clear on the difference between void and voidable, or something along those lines. You know? So wouldn't it sound to me also that a really good translation process is also a bit of a collaboration between um, you know, maybe the person who's originally putting the text together and the translator who's mm-hmm. helping them convey it to, you know, in another language about... What did you What did you want to convey here, um, and, and to make sure they understand that? Exactly, because initially, the, the first, if you ever saw any drawings of you know the translation process initially, it was you know the source writer of the source text, and then the reader, and the translator was outside of that. Mm-hmm. And now, if you see it, it's a triangle with constant movement back and forth between all three. Yeah, yeah. Because you need to consult the the problem with legal text is we don't always have an author. <laughs> they're anonymous, <laughs> well, uh, you know, and if you try to, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, who wrote this, uh, you know, and in the Spanish codes, we have some articles that were written in 1863 that are still there, Hard to find so, you know, who wrote this, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, you can't ask anybody what they really mean, so that's another one of the difficulties that they face. Um, you know, listening to, to you describe this, I mean, this also brings yet another dimension of culture when I, when I think about the translation process because it's not just the um, culture of the two, the two languages and maybe two legal systems, but even the culture between um, someone who's trained as a legal professional and someone who is a translator and then maybe an end user, which might be even a third party, about why mm-hmm. they need the text and how they view it and how they're going to use it. Um, I, it seems to me there's a lot of cultural challenges in the process, really. Do you do how do you deal with students about that? I mean, do they also are they trained to think about these issues as they approach their translation? Oh, very much so. Yeah, if, I mean, one of the major problems is that if you do not spot the possible cultural problems, mm-hmm. then however good you are 
at writing in legal English or legal Spanish and how much you know about the law, you will miss something that could be vital. Um, and, and this is true also in interpreting. I mean, there's an anecdote which I always remember uh, because we had some of our students on work placements at the police station. During the summer, they would take them on uh, to help out in interviews. And they had arrested an illegal immigrant from Africa uh, and they were interviewing him. And bearing in mind that, you know, despite the fact that the European Union now has programs to try and make professionals go to other countries and learn best practices and so on, a lot of professionals, in, you know, in this case the police, do not have a very wide cultural baggage sure. beyond their, you know, their country itself. Um, and uh, as the policeman was interviewing this gentleman, he said that he was a policeman. I can't remember which African country, but in an African country. Okay. And that in the afternoons, he would put up a stand to sell apples at the roadside. And the Spanish policeman leapt up and said, there, you see, he's lying. Because policemen are civil servants. He doesn't need to sell apples. But of course, that's the case in Spain. Sure. Sure, they're well paid. So they were immediately, you know, uh, putting them in within their cultural framework and not considering that there may be a difference. Sure, sure. So the, the interpreter there, we always have doubts there as to how much implicit information you can make explicit. And interpreters particularly say, oh, you mustn't intervene, you just interpret. But again, this is vital. And if you were a lawyer and something went wrong in the in the interview or the interrogation, you're obliged to do something about it. So we're working now on that fact as well as interpreters. If you see a cultural misunderstanding that could actually be very prejudicial for that person, sure. then surely you are obliged to make it clear. Oh, uh, that, that's a very nice development to hear about because I, I think that it's often the case that the interpreter is kind of the first first person there, you know, besides, yeah. say, the, the authority figure. And, you know, mm. while they're not there to give legal advice, they, the, this cultural interpretation has to have enormous impacts on some decisions that are made. Exactly. And in translation, I mean, one case as well that's very clear, ridiculous, but very clear. Uh, a Greek student was going to uh, defend her PhD. And as she was in Greece, I, and I was actually on the board, I took along all her paperwork to hand it in here at our postgraduate school. She'd studied in Germany, so she had a German degree that had a, an official sworn translation in Spanish. And when I gave it to the clerk, civil servant who was sitting there, he said, oh no, this is not a degree. It's not big and made of cardboard. Because in Spain they're enormous okay, and made okay. of cardboard. And he didn't want to accept it. So luckily, as I read my PhD here and so did some of my other British colleagues, I said, go to the file and get out my degree, one of the vice chancellor's degrees, in fact, and somebody else's. You see, they're all on A4 paper. They're all, you know, A4. Sure, sure. They're not huge and made of cardboard. But he was going to reject the paperwork wow. Ouch. because it was not the same size. I mean, it's a ridiculous example, but again, it's true. Unfortunately, it's true because of his lack of knowledge of anything beyond what is done in Spain. No, of course. People can only know what they experience. And if they've never mm. left the borders or had to be confronted with someone coming in from another background, yeah, why mm. would they know that? Yeah, but somebody who has perhaps less knowledge of the Spanish system or does not have enough language skills might end up leaving there without being able to actually fulfill the process they were trying to do. Sure. And this happens a lot in immigration. We see it a lot as well. I think that happens all over the world in immigration issues. I would mm -hmm. definitely say that that happens. Ah, that's, yeah. thank you for the stories, because that, that's a good illustration, I mean, of also the important role that someone can play uh, translating not only language, but culture. Um, let exactly. Me, uh, 
close down and ask you if you, you could give our listeners maybe three tips about how you would say one should best approach a legal translation. How to approach a legal translation. Yeah. First of all, background, background, background. In other words, I must fully understand the text, not just the words or the legal content, but also everything that has led to it, because we know that the law is pregnant with culture and history. So things are there for a reason. And sometimes they're for a reason and could have been changed, but they're not because they never get around to actually modernizing the language or, or, or the format of the document. Uh, then do exactly the same with whatever the target culture is. You need to understand what they are expecting as a reader. And then always be um, loyal to the meaning, the intention, not the words. Okay. Okay. So, fantastic. Um, very, very useful, I think, for a lot of listeners out there as they think about, they may be translating regularly and haven't, you know, had mm -hmm. the moment to have someone tell them that. Um, I thank you very much for your time. If listeners would like to contact you, what would be the best way? The easiest way is by email, probably. Okay. Um, it's a very simple email, cway, W-A-Y, at U-G-R dot E-S. You can find me on Google very quickly, um, as it is a public university page, and it's very easy to, to actually find me there. Right. Well, Kathy, I thank you so much for taking the time to share uh, your insights into legal translation with us. And thank you for being interested in translation and cultural problems. It's great to see somebody who's also a lawyer um, trying to bridge this gap, which uh, you know, I've been working on now for quite a long time, and I think is beginning to progress. Ah, my pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Interculturally of Council podcast. If you wish for more information about it, you can contact me via my website at www.culturalcrossing, that's cultural xing.com. If you have enjoyed the content, please take a moment to give the podcast a rating on the iTunes store or wherever you have found the podcast in order to make it visible to other potential listeners. Also, please feel free to share it with other legal professionals who might find the subject matter of this podcast interesting. Special thanks go to Lucien Stanislas for the original theme music and to Sandra Cuevas who designed the logo.